Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing white womanhood, war media, and the death drive. Our guest is Dr. Moon Charania, Assistant Professor in International Studies at Spelman College and Affiliate Faculty in Comparative Women's Studies. Charania researches and teaches in the area of transnational feminism, queer of color critique, and psychoanalysis. Her first book, Will the Real Pakistani Women Please Stand Up? Empire, Visual Culture, and the Brown Female Body offers a detailed analysis of multiple kinds of figures of Pakistani women that currently travel in transnational media, books, and film, and interrogates the ways in which these figures are used to sustain imperial projects of war, militarization, and global Islamophobia. Dr. Charania has also published widely on race and critical theory, queer of color critique, and transnational feminist theory. She's currently working on a second book manuscript, Archive of Tongue, a multi-genre project that investigates an archive of brownness through the provocation of the maternal. Moon, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you so much. Um, it's nice to be here, Juan. I appreciate you inviting me. I want to start by asking you, can you talk more about your work, uh, what you see as its importance and its implications? Why is it an important area for us to study? Yes. Uh, so I'll begin by saying that I am a U.S.-based feminist and queer theorist. My research primarily explores the intersections of sexuality, race, trauma, and geopolitics. And I work with women of color feminist theories, literary criticism, queer theory, and psychoanalysis to address how race, sex, and gender produce ways of being and ways of knowing. So what is often called in the academy Global South Epistemologies, and this word has actually also traveled into activist circles as well. So depending on the field I'm looking at in any given project, political economies of violence, visual economies of representation, or intimate economies of everyday life, the questions I raise in my work mark an effort to understand how relations of power and subjugation and violence work at the level of psychic formation, at the level of epistemology, and at the level of ontology. So today we're discussing your article, Ethical Whiteness and the Death Drive, White Women as the New War Hero, mm -hmm. which was published in yeah. Camera Obscuria in 2020. Yes. Could you give us a brief history of this particular essay when you began working on it? Um, how did the ideas originate? And then how did they change in the process of research and, and writing? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that question. So like I said, um, yeah, it was very exciting to see this piece come out in Camera uh, last year. And um, you know, I'm a feminist scholar uh, interested in the relationship between gender and power. And uh, you mentioned my first book, uh, Will the Real Pakistani Woman Please Stand Up? Empire of Visual Culture and the Brown Female Body. And in that book, my object of analysis were representations of brown women in the post 9-11 context, by which I mean there was this kind of increased traffic, proliferation and fascination with the photographed and filmed Muslim woman. And I wanted to analyze how brown women were visually and discursively produced through both violent Orientalism and through violent patriarchies. Right. So having spent so much time with images of brownness, human rights photographs, Hollywood films, news magazines such as Time and Newsweek and National Geographic, NGO and so-called feminist documentaries, and just an absolute litany of war images, um, what became more and more apparent to me was that the foil to the brown body is this white subject 
right? And we know historically this has been a white male subject. And this seems somewhat obvious to say because we know that the category of the non-Western is almost always used to confirm the Western self. So it makes sense to say, well, the way in which we produce uh, brown women is it has to be almost antithetical, anathema to how we imagine whiteness. Um, but right. what was becoming interesting to me was in particular in film and what we saw a new trend in Hollywood was that this movement from the historically white man, um, a white actor uh, as the lead character in war films was now increasingly a white woman. Mm-hmm. And number two, how this filmic maneuver instrumentalized a kind of feminism where feminism was really about recruiting particular women into a system of achievement, um, a mastery over self and over the other, and not really a radical, if at all, political subjectivity. Right. So broadly, I'm thinking here of films like Sex in the City 2, which I write about quite extensively in my first book, um, and then moving on to this kind of serious, sober war dramas um, and television such as Zero Dark Thirty, uh, television shows like Homeland, Madam Secretary, Honorable Woman, um, and so many others, too many to name, um, frankly. But all of these were visual narratives that starred white women making necropolitical decisions about brown life. So films like Eye in the Sky and Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, uh, two very different films, one a sobering film on the ethics of drone warfare and the other kind of a slapstick rom-com based on one woman's self-discovery during war. Um, They caught my attention because they appear to be both profoundly anti-masculine and inaugurate an anti-racist white subject, even as both films are driven by and indeed obsessed with the violent archive of 21st century racial struggles. So, and the differences also I'll add here in both the film's tone, their style, the plot, and even more fundamentally, the differences in the two leading actresses, Helen Mirren and Tina Fey, uh, you know, one is serious and the other is comedic. One is self-confident, the other is self-loathing. One is deferent and the other one is flippant and glib. Uh, One is cautious and the other is hasty. One slowly is thinking and contemplating death and the other one is using humor to avoid the death around her. So all of these secure a di- what I call a diverse field of whiteness beholden to the ethics of being good and doing good. And so while we know that historically ethical indifference has always been the en- engine of white supremacy, these films reveal to me that whiteness now relies on a particular kind of ethical formation that softens the necropolitical through the use of white women. And I wanted to spend some time with this idea um, and so that's that's what re- resulted in this paper. So one of the, the tropes that you um, analyze in this in this article is sort of the trope of the white liberal feminist woman, right? And you position her or this trope as the new American hero, uh, as something that is new to popular media about war. Um, how do these characters that you find in all these different media that you, that you mentioned promote sort of liberal perspectives on gender relations? as well as speak to different war realities. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I do think that the use of white women as key players in the global war is worthy of our attention. Um, And so there are aspects that we're seeing map out in cinema and film and television that are also very much reflected um, in uh, global geopolitics. So we know, for example, that it's common for white women to play lead roles in military operations 
involving rendition and torture. Uh, some of the more obvious examples, Lindy England, um, who was, uh, you know, the kind of infamous picture from Abu Ghraib, uh, mm -hmm. the white uh, soldier um, whose picture circulated uh, and because of her participation in the torture, uh, including sexual torture of Muslim men. Uh, Gina Haspel, who was uh, known as the queen of torture uh, during the Bush administration, who then was appointed as CIA director by Trump. Um, so we see this, you know, really kind of map itself out and then reflected in cinema or, you know, so, and we're also, I would say, a, in a very different moment of critique. So much has been said now versus, um, I think, even five years ago when I began thinking about this paper in 2016, um, about this figure of the liberal white woman. Um, and in a world reeling from Trump and the pandemic, we've also seen how the terrain of whiteness has shifted tremendously. The somewhat newly circulating uh, phrase of white feminism, which I personally find very useful, uh, the figure of the Karen or the Becky that we see kind of hashtag everywhere um, mm -hmm. that has also kind of shed light on this figure. Um, the increasing research, I think academic research in particular, around the role of white women, the role white women played during slavery. Um, right. Part of what I find really interesting in the, in the argument that you're making is both, this is something that you're seeing in popular media, right? In um, Eye in the Sky or Whiskey Tango Foxtrot as like popular Hollywood films. Mm -hmm. um, but it speaks to, as you point out, realities on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of like voting patterns, in terms of like recent administrations and the kinds of... Um, the mobilization of white women feminism to promote particular people in cabinet mm -hmm. positions or in positions of power um, and how their decisions were sort of clouded by, by speaking to this sort of feminist ideal, right. Without interrogating, uh, interrogating that. Yeah. Um, and you know, this, this, uh, the cost of this kind of inclusion, whether it's inclusion of women, whether it's inclusion of gay and lesbians and trans people in the military, this is also, you know, we saw this debate emerge and flatline and emerge and flatline throughout Trump's um, uh, time. And it, you know, um, is, is a, it really is, you know, we need to understand that inclusion is really um, sometimes a violent set of exchange. Um, mm -hmm. What are we, what are we really fighting for when we're fighting for inclusion is I think, you know, a very different question than just um, a kind of add and stir model of liberation. Right, exactly. So, on the on the flip side of that, so if if the two protagonists of these films that you you're talking about are the sort of white women who consider themselves uh, liberal feminists, um, the another figure that is prominent, especially especially in Eye in the Sky, uh, is the yeah. disenfranchised brown girl, mm -hmm. right? And you also talk about um, this mm -hmm. as a trope, a specific sort of trope yeah. in popular culture, right? Um, and I think you mentioned by but sort of by, by her mere presence, she represents both the, the effects of war, the disorganizing effects of war, but also the potentialities of late capitalism itself. Yeah. So could you explain a little bit about what you mean by that and, and how do you see these examples of this trope um, in popular culture? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the disenfranchised brown girl has certainly taken uh, center stage in the global political theater is what I would argue. Um, again, you know, I... I do this just a touch in my first book, uh, talking about Malala as her uh, film and um, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize that she was awarded had just mm -hmm. kind of been announced right when my uh, when I was finishing up that book. Um, in 2012, uh, two days after Malala Yousafzai was shot in the head by members of the Taliban, the United Na Nations declared it was Year of the Girl. 
So that was in 2012. And then less than a year later, a number of developments, you know, kind of uh, were catalyzed. The UN Foundation's Data 2X initiative, which collects underreported data on girls for development programs. Uh, the Clinton's Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, sorry, No Ceilings Report, which is also aimed at um, getting hard evidence of how girls are being held back. Malala's Campaign for Girls Education and Michelle Obama's Global Girls Education Initiative, Let Girls Learn. So, I mean, and this is just, I'm naming, you know, just a few out of the, you know, I think, you know, 20, 25 plus programs that proliferated across the globe. Um, Now, what I thought was interesting about these programs um, is that they produce girls as a specifically oppressed group, disenfranchised and without access to core human rights. And what's even more striking about these programs and the very discursive construction of the Year of the Girl is the overt investment in girls from the global south, always and already brown or black, often Muslim and never white. And at the level of global representation, every image of the Year of the Girl is this very racialized and classed image. So think about the kind of quintessential poster you might see if you're walking down an airport, you know, um, of, you know, this kind of... uh, brown girl in tattered clothing, riding a bike or reading a book, you know, I mean, these, this, it was just, the, the it's such a salient visual image that we, we all, uh, we're just so used to seeing it, right? And so this at-risk brown girl of another society um, is, as, you know, we might guess, um, is equal parts fantastic idea and empirical fact, um, and thus, you know, does represent the possibilities of neoliberal and neocolonial futures, just as she also hints at the violent colonial past that can be recuperated by recuperating her, right? And so often, again, going back to that image, we might see um, the backdrop of the girl, you know, trying to ride a bike or reading a, or read a book is usually this kind of society in shambles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is dilapidated. I mean, this kind of, um, you know, a body politic without civil society that you right. see, that's, that's the architecture that's usually that she's set against. Um, the way in which brown girls in the global South become interesting to the West is, and the North is often through surviving violence done to her through right. this kind of public claim to social injury. This is certainly the case with Malala, right? And this notoriety and intrigue, we should note, is not extended to, say, black girls who survive white U.S. violence. Right. And I think this is very important. Right, for sure. And I think this is where... Um, so there's there's two sort of intersecting um, aspects here, right? The disenfranchised brown girl mm-hmm. is an important trope to think about in terms of how she's brown, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of how she's a girl, right? Or a Absolutely. Child. Um, yeah. So to what you just mentioned about that, how this is not extended to black girls, I think one of the things that you point out is you're specifically thinking about the brown girl and thinking about brownness as mm-hmm. this sort of Poros flexible category, right? Following in here on Paris's yeah. uh, definition. So why is it important to talk about brownness mm-hmm. um, in the case of the films that you're talking about, right? And to sort of think through this category as something that is not as easily contained, right? As something that is both flexible and, and porous. Yeah. I, so I want to thank you uh, for this question um, because I've been thinking so much about brownness. And um, as you mentioned, when um uh, in, in my bio, I'm actually working on um, a, uh, I'm co- actually completing a second book project, which offers a serious investigation of brownness through the figure of the brown maternal, um, mm-hmm. which is why I'm using kind of a reference to tongues. It's archive of tongues is the 
tentative title of the book right now. Right. Um, and um, so I, you know, I think it, what's become more and more clear to me and more and more important um, in the process of writing this book and writing uh, these series of papers is that we do need to think more directly about the stakes of brownness in the global field of race and racism, about what is gained politically, intellectually, affectively by deploying the term brown and what emerges when brown is used as an analytic, what emerges when it's used as a descriptor. Right. And so I draw from Perez's definition um, you know, I find Perez's definition really, um, really useful because it underscores the tensions and possibilities of thinking about brownness. It highlights uh, brownness's slipperiness, its amorphousness, its lack of a central identity or clear racial genealogy. It also touches on the ways in which brownness uh, signifies uh, criminality and or terror, drug and sex trafficking wars, racialized Islam, but also the immigration, refugee and mobility crisis. So it it really points to all of these things. I think what does get left out, you know, kind of having moved away from this paper um, and into a project that's more directly about brownness. Um, so what, one of the things that's become important to me and what I'm not seeing directly analyzed or taken up um, by scholars is um, how black and brown are intersubjective racial formations. Um, I would take the position that both blackness and brownness are an extension of historical state violence. Uh, both are often, even if differently, overdetermined by a death script. Uh, both are the result of global capitalism and its violent machinations of disappearance, the severing of the mother tie, moving bodies, destroying kin, and exploiting bodies. So, so while I draw these lines of connection and intersubjectivity, um, I do want to very clearly say that I, it's my, my goal is not to decenter Blackness, nor in any way further provincialize Blackness. And I actually note this in the paper as well in my decision to describe the little girl, the Muslim girl in um, I, um, as brown. Mm -hmm. And so I understand and I'm deeply aware of how the brown body is at once a register of oppression, but can also be a site of diasporic anti-blackness. So I, I think these kind of contradictions, these tensions, these crisscrossing uh, co-formations are really important um, to acknowledge. And so having kind of moved away from uh, that particular paper and into the project I'm working on now, um, I define brownness as a racial formation trapped in its own shifting specificities even as it touches, slides into, converges with, remains aloof to, and diverges from the global and diasporic field of Blackness. As you said, thinking of brownness not only as an identifier, but as an analytic uh, to think about the, the connections with mm -hmm. and alongside uh, Blackness, right? Yeah. Yeah, and we also know, you know, my choice in the in the, in the the paper to call, to refer to the, you know, and I, I struggle with this, and I I, I let the reader into my struggle because we know Brown is capacious enough that it includes, you know, Latin Americans, it includes Middle Eastern folks, it includes South Asian folks, and indeed it also includes East African uh, mm -hmm. people. And uh, in all of these, you know, uh, geographical locations, people are both referred to as Brown and referred to themselves as Brown. And there's also a resistance. Uh, you know, Brown is not just kind of, you know, uh, eyes closed, you know, embrace, there is, you know, a kind of, it's an embattled field of racialization that can be pejorative and that can also uh, perhaps offer an opening. Right, right, for sure. Yeah. So on the one hand, this, the thinking about the disenfranchised brown girl is thinking about brownness, right? Mm -hmm. And the 
the complications of that category, um, the flexibility, the resistance to it, but also the potentialities of thinking through it. Right. The, the other part of that is thinking about the girl, right? Or in particular, uh, the girl as a child. Yeah. Um, so what kind of work does the figure of the child do um, in these discourses that you're talking about, right? The intersection of thinking about human rights and uh, mm -hmm. ethical whiteness in, in this analysis. Yeah, so I, um, you know, use um, basically just to bring up Lee Edelman, um, who's, you know, uh, known for his theorizations of the child and his book, No Future. Um, uh, simply, you know, because, I mean, basically, I bring up Lee Edelman only to offer a kind of critique. Um, I, you know, I see Edelman um, and a number of other kind of white queer thinkers, you know, as part of what I would call, you know, call white queer theory. Um right. And, you know, they're the white queer daddies of queer theory. And so there's a lot of stuff that's being kind of uh, thrown out, dismissed, not looked at um, when we don't, um, you know, analyze and kind of get, get our hands dirty with the kind of uh, theorizations they're doing. So I'll briefly say Edelman um, argue that the figure of the child stands in for USP tyranny. Um, in, in <clears throat> excuse me, Edelman's conception, the child... Um, serves as the telos of this social order, this kind of phantasmic be beneficiary of politics or the capital P, right? right. And um, by no means am I the only one. A number of scholars have shown how the very architecture of Edelman's argument is racist. Uh, one, because the child in his conception is a disavowed white child, uh, never right. named as white. Number two, um, Edelman refuses to see how racialized children never stood for the future. So, and three, how U.S. futurity uh, relies on a number of what I call necropedophiliac practices of white supremacy directed towards children of color. So caged immigrant children in the border camps, dead Syrian children washing up on shores. And most recently, I'll point to Nadira Shalhaboub's work, who demonstrates that children are now one of the main targets of the Israeli state. Mm -hmm. So we know that there are ways um, that, you know, Edelman's argument has these major flaws in it, in I, the figure of the child, and so in I in the Sky, um, the figure of the child is important work. She occupies the not yet subject. She appears to enable a kind of Muslim futurity that is kind and earnest, which is a deeply gendered technology in contrast to this hegemonically accepted perception of Muslim boys who are often seen as already angry and you know with possible adult political emotions. Right. Uh, the girl is innocent and her innocence is vital to the primal scene. So too, as you noted, uh, is her girlhood. And I think the girlhood aspect is really important because um, the use of the feminine perverts the terrorist further, uh, which follows this kind of common line of reasoning that Muslim terrorists are particularly dangerous to women mm -hmm. and girls, even though the little girl's fate is most directly in the hands of another woman. Um, yeah. Powell, right? Uh, Helen Mirren, who plays uh, Colonel Power. So, I argue in the paper that um, the little girl, uh, the little brown girl is the fetish object central to the story. In fetishizing the little girl, the film comes to plead for empathy by asking whites to read their death-driven investment in life as a pedagogy that aggresses only when necessary and by, white, by which whites, as in white people, and whiteness survives. Right. So, um, and I'll say a little bit more is that, you know, the little Muslim girl injects a little bit of, you know, um, eros into this culture of death, like a little bit of love, a little bit of adorability, 
um, into this culture of death. And that evocation of, on one hand, the US-UK military dilemma against the primitive, adorable girl allows the film to succeed at the level of anti-violence, assuring the audience that we are all conflicted, even as the audience is left with the final image of the adorable succumbing to the death drive. Right. So in some ways, the the choosing um, Eye in the Sky becomes this like perfect text, right? Because it encapsulates so many of the, um, mm-hmm. of the aspects that you're pointing to are broadly in popular culture, are in the geopolitics of how um, we as uh, different societies like uphold um, young brown girls and at the same time in order to perpetuate all of this um, war and, and, and necropolitics, right, mm-hmm. worldwide. Um, but one, one of the key terms that you mentioned, which you just mentioned now, is the death drive, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it becomes this, this way of thinking through the different formulations of life and death as you see them uh, yeah. being formulated in this film. So um, can you give us a brief, a brief take on, on the death drive? <laughs> um, it comes from Freud. So what was Freud's original take? But then how does, yeah. how does this help your argument? How do you mobilize it in your work? Uh, feminist scholars who work with psychoanalytic concepts, um, there's always this kind of tension um, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, Freud psycho and uh, analysis can be can be deeply unfulfilling, mm-hmm. um, and also as we know, deeply misogynistic. So yeah. what I'll say is, um, so having said that, you know, I do think that there are particular aspects of Freud um, uh, conceptualizations that are, are are very very fascinating to me as a feminist scholar. The death drive is one of them. So okay, Freud posited that the death drive is a necessary component of the human psyche, uh, shaped by a compulsion to repeat. Um, and by self-destructiveness, by death wishes, by self-inflicted suffering. Um, As a key element of the psyche, the death drive, as Freud conceptualized it, is the interiorization of aggression. So internally directed self-harm, death, and destruction ideation. So yes, the death drive can be something that stands on its own interior interior compulsion, but what Freud doesn't take into account um, is external or exteriorized violence, which is a key aspect of colonial modernity, even as Freud's development of this concept is inextricably linked to the violence of modern coloniality, which is the time in which he's writing, and is embedded in racial sociogenics, even though his work never acknowledges this, right? Alongside so many other things his work doesn't acknowledge. Um, I take up Freud's uh, concept of the death drive to put pressure on what I see as the whiteness undergirding the death drive. And I'll point to just a few moments, I think, in the films um, where I uh, see this take shape. Mm -hmm. So one of the moments um, that I think is, and we see this in so many, uh, like this genre of like terrorist films, is um, this visual juxtaposition between rationalized death making and Mm -hmm. irrational death ritual. In Eye in in the Sky, you have the scene where the Somalian terrorists are slowly and ritualistically preparing for a suicide mission. And it's a drone, like little beetle that um, is capturing all of this footage. Uh, One member is slowly dressing the other in a suicide vest versus um, the other kind of uh, scenes in the film where you have a boardroom in London and you have these four dismayed, you know, suited white suited uh, British officials, uh, uh, one woman in there as well including the lead, uh, the leading lieutenant uh, played by Alan Rickman, 
and they're watching on this kind of flat screen monitor the displays of a close the uh, close up displays of the young girl laying her bread loaf by loaf on the table mm-hmm. and so you have this kind of very sophisticated conflicted white people in relationship to technology versus this embodied ritualized brown folks um and this becomes a key rational ra- a key rationalization sorry for ethical whiteness the visual performance of the death drive is a ritual erases if not and in fact i would say wipes clean the visual reality of the death drive as rational mm-hmm. um as a decision we make rationally um the the other aspect i would say is the uh you know a key aspect of the death drive is the compulsion to re- to repeat um mm-hmm. and destroy and so and in the film again i in the sky uh you know the state the white racial state omnipotently masters this reproduction because it despairs its death drive even as it relies on its inevitable technology of repetition and seriality um so what i'm referring to here is this nervous drone pilot who's this young white uh you know young white man um and he is you know uh you know appears very ethical because he refuses to shoot the missile he refuses um you know his uh superior's orders to uh shoot the drone um and in fact re- rebels against her and in that moment of rebellion appears to have saved the girl even if momentarily but eventually as we know in the film um uh he does shoot the missile and 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 the little girl does die and at the end of the film when he's leaving um he is congratulated by his superiors and told that he has done a do- job well done and we'll see you tomorrow um and so what fundamentally the kind of even this is the capitalist logics of work well it's my job um mm. this kind of you know my job is that brown death is on repeat also because yes you mentioned like the the film i in the sky ends with and we'll see you tomorrow right so that there is that quick allusion to mm-hmm. repetition there will yeah. continue to be so sort of these killings mm-hmm. even as the entire plot of the film is to focus on the one moment right and to yeah. make this the grand mm-hmm. um site for thinking about the the politics of all of this yeah. right so yeah. but US also exceptionalism it, is never far behind right and this is without yeah. uh, to create the whole film only to say well see you tomorrow um is you know it 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 does both the work that US exceptionalism um is notorious for that has been widely critiqued um including its practices of inclusion right now US exceptionalism lies and is embodied in um white women um but also um that it's 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 just another day in the war yeah. on terror right it's just another day in the global war right right and in this particular case the the narrative that they construct around this um as you point out in in relation to to white women it's also it's not just the Helen Mirren character who's mm-hmm. the the sort of general lieutenant mm-hmm. um colonel, colonel. yeah um, <laughs> one of those titles <laughs> yeah exactly i normally um, would not have known the right answer <laughs> <laughs> uh it's not just her doing the the work of uh white womanhood as as the in standing in for the state mm-hmm. but the i in the sky in particular presents then the the radicalized white english woman right who's the yeah. person that they're sending the drone strike for yeah and that is causing the the sort of adorable brown girl to be the collateral. Right. Uh, so it is presenting a very specific formulation of mm-hmm. the this mm-hmm. sort of massive drone and continuous drone killing that happens uh, mm-hmm. again day mm-hmm. after day after day. 
What I will say is that, you know, we know racial presence is necessary to the expansion, development, and implementation of an imperial order. And I complicates this idea, right? Because when we think of racial presence, we're thinking of black and brownness, uh, we're thinking of Asianness, we're thinking of all, you know, nativeness, we're not thinking about uh, whiteness. Uh, race is the other of whiteness, right? So, uh, so, so yeah, I does complicate this idea by making the target an English, a white English woman. Now radicalized, the film appears to aim for a kind of racial destabilization, or at least at momentarily provide an opportunity for viewers to visualize more complex racial and national identifications. Um, but you know what I'll say to that is that. Terrorist monitoring is racial monitoring, and mm -hmm. the state machine is a racializing machine, and there's there's really no getting around that. Um, yet, this is a face to the film. The simple addition of an Anglo-English woman grants authority to the filmic empiricism, and thus to the filmic imperative to kill, but it does so by writing a new racial romance. And so in the paper, I ask um, a few questions, and then I'll, I'll try to kind of play with that um, in answering them. Um, I ask what gender dynamics are revealed in setting up two white women against each other in an antagonism that sanctions the brown girl's death? Mm -hmm. Why symbolically preserve the little brown girl, if only to bury her? Moreover, what racial formations are relinquished in revealing Powell's crusade against a radicalized English woman? whose face we see for less than 30 seconds in the film and for whom the young girl must die. And so some of these questions I'm asking also echo uh, what you uh, just pointed to, right? The use of the white English woman, we know cleverly masked the death in instinct with this colorblind democratic order. We're not killing brown people. It's not, it's not a genocide. It's not a targeted black or brown. It's we're killing terrorists. And terrorists yeah. come in all shapes, colors, and sizes with Aisha. Um, Al-Hadi, who is the um, uh, formerly known as Susan Helen Danford, um, the character um, in the in Eye in the Sky. So what we learn about her is that, you know, she had a troubled childhood. She converted at the age of 15, uh, was radicalized in a West London mosque where she met and married her Muslim husband. Mm -hmm. And together, her and her Muslim husband are number four and five on the East Africa Most Wanted list. So... While certainly the audience isn't supposed to feel sorry for her, the framing of um, her terroristic turn, Aisha's terroristic turn vis-a-vis -vis this troubling childhood logic, and the cinematic decision to keep Aisha literally hidden for the majority of the film, um, mm -hmm. and in a film where we see everything, right, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. except her, um, reveals something about both white terrorist life and death versus the life and death of the racial other, Black and brown death is visually so available as to be completely normalized. Um, and I, I, I do think that, you know, this is, um, you know, it's a very disturbing fact of, our, of the visual culture that we uh, consume. And so the cleverness of a white woman as a target who is literally visually unavailable against and alongside brown death making that is always visually available imposes um, an interesting epistemic frame, but also one that is ontologically presumptuous. Um, yeah. And um, so, you know, I would take the position that what I is doing in terms of this kind of characterization and in terms of these varying, you know, uh, missing scenes of life and death, this is not inconsequential to the geopolitics of race and gender in the globalized world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And to your point, I think one of the the 
most telling um, narrative decisions of the film is to create this entire plot around we have a drone strike to kill the radicalized white English woman, mm-hmm. but we're not going to focus on showing the radicalized white English woman, right? Mm-hmm. The the showing, the sort of visual spectacle part of the film is showing the the brown girl who is also going to die mm-hmm. collaterally, but is also going to die, right? Mm-hmm. So as, as you point out, and a lot of scholars talk about this, right? But it's the um, brown and black death is visual spectacle mm-hmm. um, is Absolutely. sort of something that we in society keep repeating and keep even when we frame it around, oh, mm-hmm. this is about like creating empathy or about learning or any of that. We're still fetishizing that spectacle, um, right? As opposed to to white death. Yeah. So all of this, I mean, both films, I and the Sky certainly, right? It's the the whole idea is in the eye, uh, mm-hmm. and it is about a drone strike. Uh, but then even as you point out, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which is uh, about the reporter and uh, bringing the camera, both of them are very interested in this idea of mm-hmm. the visual, right? Mm-hmm. And the gaze. Um, and in some ways, the, the sort of mediating technology of the camera. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that connection between both films and how they're using the camera to to promote particular assumptions about war and, and, and visuality? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I take the argument that uh, parallel to gender um, is the mediating technology of the camera. So in both films, the camera is a central and paranoid actor. And specific expectations are of seeing are at stake for both uh, Barker, uh, Tina Fey, and Powell, Helen Mirren. And what I think is interesting, right, and I, I reference this in the paper, is that the two historic um, historically distinct functions of the camera um, uh, uh, conceptualized by Susan Sontag and John Berger, um, defined as an instrument of state surveillance, as a means of private pleasure, as a, as a mode of uh, rendering spectacle. Uh, all three of these kind of collide in um, the drone drama and uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Right. Um, and I specifically... The camera is not just mediating the audience and the plot, but is literally, like you said, a character. You know, I mean, the beetle that is the drone is uh, is a character in and of itself. I would say, what what it does in 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 both I and Whiskey is the camera uh, brings the war into the living room, right? Brings mm-hmm. the war into uh, very the it, um, its emotional immediacy, its violent urgency. Um, the camera gives it a sense that it's happening in real time. It gives us a sense that it's um, happening right in front of us. It appears also to unedit the war. So what we're seeing is, the, again, the camera in real time as it's happening rather than a kind of edited. Uh, we are following the camera. We might as well be holding the camera um, in both in both films. And I think this is also an important technique of bringing the audience in and um, producing the war as this unedited rubble. Uh, versus something that is coming to you hours later or days later, you know, after the event. Um, And so this also, I think, effectively erases how the camera is a mechanism of intrusion, of surveillance, and a means through which the the death of the other is made easier, more accessible, and more of a spectacle. In whiskey, I think a specific thing that I think about is... um, uh, Tina Fey, uh, Barker, and her camera kind of stumble through uh, the harrowing war zones, um, uh, you know, in a very funny way. Like she's awkward and clumsy and, you know, a little ditzy and mm-hmm. certainly has, you know, no cultural cachet whatsoever. Um, 
But again, the necropolitical irony of the camera as a democratic information technology, which is what it's supposed to be for, you know, photojournalists, yeah. alongside this kind of amnesty of satire as claimed by Faye in producing whiskey, exposes uh, to me that flippancy, glibness as affects of ethical whiteness, like the camera itself, erases the violence that it seeks to reveal. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating when you put these two films together as you have, is that they're both working in very different genres, uh, create very different situations, but yet they are able to speak to um, these topics in mm -hmm. very similar ways and using very similar tropes uh, through their protagonists, right? And through the use of the, the camera by their protagonists as yeah. well, so. And, and they um, succeed in very similar ideological agendas. Right, right, for sure. So one of the, the things that you mentioned is that both of these films uh, attempt to transcend whiteness uh, and they use that through the, the, the female protagonist, right? So they transcend whiteness through gender. Um, can you tell us more about what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, what I will say is I think, you know, my approach to, you know, um, thinking about whiteness here is not just whiteness as a skin or identity, but whiteness as uh, that which one uh, ascends to. It's a kind of ascendant, um, aspirational subjectivity. And I mentioned this earlier that um, whiteness is a mastery of self and a mastery of the other. Um, and so in using um, ethical whiteness and using uh, developing this frame, ethical whiteness, I'm thinking about um, how, you know, what does it look like to generate an account of white violence against, you know, in this, in the case of the films I'm looking at, brown people globally, as reliant on a persistent form of white empathy that emerges from this white woman subject now spearheading the war. Right. And so I think that is a really important, you know, to line up white, uh, to line up the kind of affect of empathy and deliberation, um, confusion, bafflement alongside. Um, and actually, what's interesting, actually, you know, let me backpedal is, you know, in, in Eye in the Sky, the only one who's not baffled is actually the white woman, mm -hmm. right? Helen Mirren um, is the most confident and really the most at ease in shooting uh, the missile, whereas everybody else is like, oh, goodness, this is, you know, going to sit on my conscience. And she seems to not have one at all. So she operates in many ways, like what Angela McRobbie calls a phallic girl. Basically, what McRobbie is referring to is uh, the ways in which, uh, you know, in a, this kind of post-feminist uh, field, mm -hmm. uh, women are able to adopt a kind of aggressive individualism, a masculinist uh, set of behaviors and um, desires without, without punishment. And in right. fact, might even be celebrated because of that. So I think, you know, the ascendancy, uh, I think, you know, biopolitics is a white ascendancy. So the more we perfect our own biopolitical selfhood, subjectivities, it includes folks like you and I, we can think about how we might also, um, you know, depending on what kind of citizenship and what kind of subjectivity we put out in the world, how we might also embody imperial power, um, just, you know, uh, despite or in spite of the fact that we might, we are also people of color. So, um, and so I think this, the ascendancy of whiteness is really about understanding how whiteness operates, not just as racial, as signifier of skin or identity, uh, which it also does, 
but that it is also a kind of ascendancy to a particular kind of citizenship that is uh, that has mastered the self and the other. And we are increasingly seeing this with uh, white women for sure. But also, I mean, we can give the example of, you know, of Kamala Harris, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll see where this where this takes us. But I think we've already gotten a bit of a glimpse, right? Um, yeah. Just in the very recent, um, some of the news that we're recently hearing and seeing. and Right. And I think that's one of the sort of crucial aspects to not only think of whiteness at the level of skin color, right, or our visual, even if if the visual is such such a clear component of this sort of biopolitical whiteness, um, because then it's easy to do a sort of a reductive uh, thinking in terms of identity of like, well, if the skin color doesn't match, then they can't aspire to this right. position of whiteness to um, this mm-hmm. uh, sort of different level of citizenship. But in fact, as you point out, a lot of people do, right? And mobilize that uh, for for specific purposes, right? Whether it's in, a, in the political arena or whether it's in, in popular culture. It, these kinds of moments uh, really lay bare how whiteness um, is that which we ascend to rather mm-hmm. than... Um, a kind of like, you know, as, as you mentioned, this reductive, um, you know, skin or identity, which it may also be that. Um, it can be both and. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess we've been, we've been touching on this throughout, uh, but the, the key sort of concept or um, idea that you're linking all of these different um, tropes, all of these different theories to um, a of ethical whiteness. So if we were to have like the short uh, condensed <laughs> version of like, what, what are we mean by ethical whiteness in terms of like, how does it connect to things like empathy? Mm-hmm. How does it connect to things like the death drive mm-hmm. um, and visuality? Um, what, what would you, how would you give us the, like the, the, the yeah. short pitch for ethical <laughs> whiteness? <laughs> so I, uh, that's so hard. Um, I've never been good at short pitches, but I, I'll say a couple of things. So I developed ethical whiteness as a theoretical intervention to generate an account of white violence against brown people globally um, as one that was reliant on a few key factors. So one of that I'll point to is white empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one I'll point to is this kind of slow, deliberate, conflicted, baffled contemplation Um, And the third, I would say, is a very deliberate um, not seeing below the surface, which is very ironic because whiteness, where whiteness is embodied in empire um, as a technologically superior and hegemonic formation, literally sees everything. So these kind of three prongs of ethical whiteness, this unseeing, um, a kind of ethics of not seeing below the surface, a white empathy and a white ba- and, and bafflement mm-hmm. um, to uh, and and see how those three often are at play uh, in in the field of um, black and brown death. Right. And I think that you know there's probably some room to think about how this maps out even um, in the U.S. context. I think one of the one of the contributions people are thinking about 
the global south, but this conception of the global south and the global north allows us to uh, think beyond the sort of the the legalistic notion of nations, mm-hmm. right? And realize that a lot of the uh, imperial processes happen both abroad, but also within the nation um, as a way to segment different different portions of a population as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's why I think beyond the article, um, you know, the the framework of ethical whiteness uh, might be useful um, if mm-hmm. we think about these di- kind of varying um, uh, what constitutes, what are the constituents of ethical whiteness? How does it map itself out? And when we look at those affective terrains, those epistemological terrains, we can see it in moments of, uh, of uh, violence against Black people in the U.S., of moments of, you know, we can see it at the border um, mm-hmm. with the caging of children. We, I mean, we see it across, um, across oceans and across land. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, how have you built on this work since its publication? Um, So this piece was actually part of a series of questions I was um, asking about white women in geopolitics, I'm sorry, white women in biopolitics. Um, And it actually led to three different publications. One is uh, this ethical whiteness piece, looking at war films. Um, I also co-authored an article, and I mentioned this a bit earlier, on the so-called feminism of the new Disney. And this was a co-authored article called Single White Female, uh, Mm -hmm. Feminist Melancholia and Queer Trauma in the New Disney. Um, And uh, that was kind of a fun piece to write. (laughs) And then um, another one uh, looking actually very specifically and closely at Fifty Shades of Grey at the Mm -hmm. time that it became this kind of, you know, erotic uh, bestseller and when the film came out. uh, So just the first film. And I argued in that piece that, um, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey um, is haunted by a master narrative of white racism and heterosexual compulsion. And that while it appears to seduce viewers through this promise of explicit sex, which is actually really bad sex, um, mm-hmm. um, and wealth, uh, the film's true offering is much more simple, the promise of whiteness. And so um, that piece is actually called The Promise of Whiteness, Fifty Shades of Grey as White Racial Archive. So those were kind of some of the pieces that allowed me to really flesh out um, how I was thinking about um, whiteness. In my current um, book, I also have a, a chapter where I'm thinking about Black, Brown, and white relations um, within the kind of everyday, um, you know, the kind of intimate economies of everyday life um, in the figure of the brown mother. Um, and this is the book I'm working on right now. And so, um, you know, I, this theme, and this is just to say that this theme of, you know, the theme of whiteness doesn't go away. The analysis of whiteness, the scrutiny, um, the really kind of deliberate, critical gaze on whiteness um, hasn't by any means left my work, but um, it, where it's really explicitly being taken on is in, in these particular pieces. Right. Are there any recent developments um, in the world or in other scholarship um, that have added or changed to these initial arguments that you had in the piece or as you're working through the, the subsequent pieces from it? I'll just I'll point to things that I'm keeping my eye on um, mm-hmm. and I, that I know other scholars who, who I work with and who I res- whose work I respect are keeping their eye on. 
um, and how important it is for how important it is for us to keep our eye on these things and um, how that uh, field of whiteness as both a, a aspirational um, ascendant position has um, been strengthened uh, mm-hmm. by you know um, the, this moment. So you know we can look at a number of things, right? The uh, perpetual border discourse that suffuses this moment, the inventory of, you know, cacotopic governments of the worst kind, Modi in India, Johnson in Britain, Macron in France, Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, mm-hmm. strengthened by the global pandemic and armed with unprecedented surveillance mechanisms. Um, I also think about how in India, you know, I'm reading these stories where the wealthy are hoarding oxygen tanks and the poor and the working class are dying and Modi is suppressing the death count. Speaking of Modi, uh, we also know in Kashmir, genocidal violence against Muslim citizens is condoned under this military lockdown when Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, which granted autonomy to the region, was revoked by Modi. Kashmiri men um, are being systematically blinded by pellets. The New York Times called this an epidemic of dead eyes. Um, and misogyny, never too far behind, partners with maiming as, quote, marry a Kashmiri woman now becomes the number one search phrase in India within five days of the revocation of Article 370. Uh, so, you know, I think, and you know, I can say a little bit more. Uh, we're not talking about Syria anymore, but we should, uh, because while it's receded from international public and media culture, uh, regional and global powers continue to quietly exploit Syria for their own advantage and apportion out its territory for repeated bombing. And yeah. um, at this point, Syria has been bombed by the Assad regime, United States, Great Britain, France, Russia, Iran, Turkey, Israel, Saudi, Jordan, Bahrain, and the UAE. I mean, this is just absolutely, you know, it's just baffling, right? And um the you know 2017 mass rapings of Rohingya Muslim women by Buddhist soldiers. No one's talking about this anymore. Um, so there is a way in which I think in international media cultures, you know, uh, things rise and seed um, and fall um, that you know take our attention away um, mm-hmm. from things that are still happening. They're still urgent. They're still prescient. They're still uh, you know da- daily violence, and we're not um, we're not talking about it anymore. So I think each of these, you know, imperial and genocidal strains of misogynistic racism, of global Islamophobia, they constellate together. And we need to keep our eyes and our analysis on this. Um, it's always good to end on a on a downer, just to be like, remind everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a lot. <laughs> so I apologize. Uh, to end on such a um, necropolitical note, um, I, you know, I just, I, you know, I, these papers are about necropolitics. And so, um, and, you know, my work is, is you know, on the kind of co-terminous realities of sex and violence. And yeah. I, that's where I always end up. I try to go to happier places, I promise. <laughs> yeah, but it's also, it would be disingenuous to try and end with a happy note when, there is all of this still going on. Yeah. Right? It, would like, it would be like the the, the sort of fake um, Hollywood ending of saying like, good job. Yeah. We did a good job today talking yeah. about these things, but these things are still ongoing and, and they're, um, yeah. they still are affecting people in a very real way. Yeah, ab- way. absolutely. Moon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for reading and thank you um, for inviting me. 
to this podcast um, and 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 for um, your really provocative and thorough questions. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu, including credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.